Come into CVS today and get free flu shots for the whole family. Plus, get a $5 off $20 shopping pass with each one. Visit CVS today. No-cost flu shots with most insurance. Restrictions apply. Visit cvs.com for details. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for listening and for tuning tuning in this Tuesday. Uh, and uh, for those of you watching me on Periscope, hello. Uh, I had to put some fires out before coming on the air, so I didn't get to do my off the air before the show starts uh, little meet and greet. Uh, hopefully, um, I will do that on uh, a Friday later in the week. And I apologize um, that I did not do it today. Mea culpa, mea culpa. Uh, anyway, we have a great show in store. We now have not one but two great guests joining us um, for different aspects surrounding the issue um, of not just George Floyd, but racism, his death at the hands of a white police officer, and so much more as our nation uh, mourns the death of that man. And quite frankly, um, hopefully someday can mourn the systemic racism that has led, uh, many people feel, to the attitude uh, brought about uh, to this man and others that have died at the hands of uh, police officers. Uh, but we're going to start it off uh, in this uh, hour, as we do uh, every beginning of the Leslie Marshall Show, pretty much almost 100% of the time. Uh, we're going to do a little thing called Rick. Uh, today, um, there was a public memorial service um, and uh, actually, there was a public memorial service, a public showing uh, yesterday, um, but today the public was only able to view the horse-drawn procession, um, and uh, the memorial was private, but the horse-drawn uh, procession was public. Uh, one of George Floyd's brothers, uh, Philanese Floyd, uh, remembered his brother at this week's public memorial service. Take a listen. How y'all doing first? My name is Philonis Floyd. Brother George Floyd, we come up together. We didn't have much. Our mom did what she could. My brother, we did a lot of things together from like talking with my mom, dancing with my mom, cooking with our mom, brothers and sisters, uh, man, so much. We made banana mayonnaise sandwiches together, you know. It was, it was a family thing, you know. I remember nights when the day before school, we didn't have a washing machine. So we would all go in and put our socks and underwear in a bathroom sink and just start washing them, washing them. If we didn't have detergent, we would use soap. But we would wash them. We were going to be clean. <laughs> we were going to be clean. Everywhere you go and see people, how they cling to him, they wanted to be around him. You know, George. He was like a general. Every day he walks outside, it'd be a line of people, like just like when we came in, wanting to greet him and wanted to have fun with him. Uh, 
guys that was doing drugs like uh, smokers and homeless people, you couldn't tell because when you spoke to George, they felt like they was the president because that's how he made you feel. Wow. He, he, was, he was powerful, man. He had a way with words. I'm just, man, it's crazy, man. All these people came to see my brother and that's amazing to me that he touched so many people's hearts, you know, because he's been touching our hearts, you know. Um, you come to Third Ward, where we're from, people are crying right now. That's how much they love them. You know, I'm just staying strong as I can because I need to get it out. I need to get it out. Everybody wants justice. We want justice for George. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. Uh, yes, I, I believe he is. And my uh, apologies for the mispronunciation of Mr. Floyd, uh, Mr. George Floyd's brother's uh, first name. Let's rip another. Lines snaked out the doors today. Some polling locations didn't open on time and others had no working voting machines in several counties. Those were the first few hours of voting in the state of Georgia today where primary elections are being held. Uh, this is a potential preview of how new voting procedures brought on by the coronavirus pandemic could affect the presidential election in November. Uh, this is what Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms tweeted barely 30 minutes after polls opened today. Quote, this seems to be happening throughout Atlanta and perhaps throughout the county. People have been in line since before 7 a.m. this morning. Now, remember, it's bad enough when you don't have a pen pandemic, right? But you have people that are outside waiting in lines, have to be six feet apart, have to have masks on. Only certain numbers of people can go um, in to vote at these uh, polling locations. Why is everyone on the right so opposed to vote by mail, which is safer and would be more accurate? And by the way, in a place like Georgia, this could hurt a Republican more than a Democrat. Uh, she added, quote, if you are in line, please do not allow your vote to be suppressed. Please stay in line. They should offer you a provisional ballot if the machines are not working. I checked, by the way, 97 degrees is supposed to be the high in Atlanta. Voters, that's why they call it hot Atlanta. Voters in the Atlanta area reported arriving before the polls opened. They stood in line for hours with election officials processing ballots painfully slowly because they couldn't get new touchscreen machines to work. Now, the ballot marking devices deployed statewide for the first time today, those replace a paperless electronic voting system that a federal judge declared insecure and unreliable. I'm into paperless, okay? I mean, not paperless. I'm into paper. You know, I'm old-fashioned like that. Election security experts had questioned whether officials had enough time to provide sufficient training for their use in the primaries. Uh, Ron Clark is an educator. He's an author. And he said in an interview that he was sixth in line at a polling location in the Central Park area of Atlanta. He spent more than three hours, sixth in line, more than three hours, and ultimately was not able to cast his ballot because the poll workers did not know how to use the machines. Now, Clark said he's worried that his vote won't count. He cast a provisional ballot, but he believes the computer system logged him as having voted, even though he wasn't able to. And by the way, if somebody votes and they're not sure and they give him a provisional ballot, then you do have people voting twice. So that, that this is a bigger issue, right? When he left, workers were processing about six provisional ballots per hour, he added. More than 200 people waiting in line to vote. Just let them do the provisional ballots, right? Good, good old-fashioned way. Or if they had this provisional ballot at home and they could mail it in, 
even easier and safer during this pandemic. Voting rights advocates said a confluence of circumstances hit today. Poor preparations for a surge in uh, mail-in balloting, uh, relatively new voting equipment that voters are not used to, an exodus of poll workers due to fears of coronavirus and heightened interest in voting among residents in the wake of George Floyd's killing by Minneapolis police. Seth Bringman, who is a spokesman for former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams' voting rights group Fair Fight Action, uh, he said some polling locations ran out of provisional ballots and, and, and needed because at these polling locations because so many machines were out of order and within the first hour of voting. And while Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, Georgia's top election official, warned voters on the eve of the primaries last night to expect long lines and days-long delays for results, he blamed Fulton for the mailed ballot problems. Bringman said the buck stopped with Raffensperger. Yep. Quote, he had primary responsibility to make sure today's elections went well and he failed. Bringman noted that the problems are not limited to Fulton, but also extended to surrounding counties in Georgia. And he said Raffensperger, not local officials, chose the vendor responsible for mailing ballots. By the way, the person at the top, they are responsible. The Secretary of State, yes, the Secretary of State noted that he has launched an investigation into difficulties in Fulton County, home of Atlanta, where many voters requested ballots by mail with plenty of time to spare. Some as far back as May, they still haven't received them. He emphasized that those voters can vote in person if they still haven't received their mail-in ballot by today. All five states holding primaries today, Georgia, Nevada, South Carolina, West Virginia, and North Dakota have adjusted voting procedures to make it easier for voters to cast ballots by mail. In all five states, mail balloting is projected to reach record numbers. 1.2 already have cast their ballots in the state of Georgia alone. And although Joe Biden already secured enough delegates to become the Democratic presidential nominee, a handful of today's contest will set up competitive congressional races in November. In Georgia, both parties will choose nominees in the 7th Congressional District, congressional district uh, blue-trending Atlanta suburbs, and the deep red 9th and 14th districts, uh, where Republicans, uh, incumbents there, are retiring. 9th and 14th in Georgia, get your butts out there or mail them in. we got to flip it blue. Um, and in Nevada, Republicans will nominate candidates to challenge Democratic incumbents in the swing third and fourth districts. Republicans in South Carolina's first district will pick their challenger to Representative Joe Cunningham, a moderate Democrat who won the seat two years ago. And West Virginia Democrats will pick their nominee to face Governor Jim Justice. He left the party in 2017, if you remember, to become a Republican. Some Georgia and South Carolina races could head to runoffs later this summer. That's what's ripped for the first half of Ripped from the Headlines. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back uh, to you here on the Institute Democracy and Talk. Don't go. Oh, actually, uh, yeah, we're doing a little bit longer riff, right? Oh, no, when we come back, yeah, when we come back, you're going to hear from a special guest uh, about uh, George Floyd and his death. We'll be back. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back. We have two guests in this hour. Glad to have them with us. First up, 
uh, is a very special guest, and I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to embarrass him just a tad. Okay, um, this first guest is Michael Mendelson. Michael is a retired law enforcement officer from Charlotte County Sheriff's Office in Florida. Now, I don't want you to turn away from looking and watching, and I don't want you to turn away from listening. Um, Michael watches me on Fox probably 24 seven because he always has it on. Michael had to leave Florida because it wasn't red enough for him. And uh, Michael is a huge Trump supporter. And you might say, Leslie, why the heck are you having this guy on? Well, he is my cousin. And we and we disagree politically almost 100%. But I saw him post something on Facebook the other day, and I thought, that's my cousin. And uh, because he is a former law enforcement officer, I thought, who better uh, to talk about what has been done uh, to George Floyd at the hands of an officer than a retired law enforcement officer from Charlotte County Sheriff's Office in the great state of Florida, my cousin, Michael Mendelson. Hello, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. Really, seriously. Uh, good, good, to have, good to have you with us. Um, Derek Chauvin, who is now charged with second-degree murder, you, you've, seen, you've seen this video. And as a former police officer, what was honestly your first reaction when you saw this video with that police officer, white police officer, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, the African-American that we all saw in that video? Right. Well, obviously, uh, my, my initial uh, reason for looking at that video uh, was because, quite honestly, as you know, my perspective is a little bit different on <laughs> on things um, uh, compared to probably a majority of your listeners. But uh, I looked at it more for objective reasons to say there's got to be more to the story than what we're hearing. Because, you know, when I look at a lot of other videos of other past incidents, you know, I look at these things with with trying to look at it from the police officer's point of view, like what what was going on that we're not seeing that, you know, the public may not recognize. And so I decided I was able to locate the entire nine minute video and I watched the whole thing and I was quite frankly horrified by what I saw. Um, the fact that this officer was not necessarily the tactics that were used, but the fact that what really shocked me was when when Mr. Floyd went unresponsive and the lack of empathy, the lack of caring, the lack of, they did absolutely nothing to this man who had just died in their grasp, in their custody, and they did nothing to assist him to, to render any kind of aid. As law enforcement officers, most of us are at least trained in CPR. A lot of us are trained as first responders. Um, and they did nothing to render any assistance to this poor man who, regardless of whatever his past was, nobody has the right to take his life or to not render aid. They had a duty to act. You know, if he was in, they, in my opinion, after watching that, I'm like, if they had at least initiated some, tor some sort of uh, first aid they rolled him over and repositioned him, done chest compressions, done some CPR. They may have, quite frankly, been able to save his life because the position he was in, 
is called uh, is, is is we're trained in law enforcement that it's a bad position to be in. It's called positional asphyxiation when you have somebody handcuffed behind their back and they're laying on their stomach. And a lot of us are trained to understand that that's not a good position to be in. And and that position alone, if somebody's left there unattended, they could go into have medical issues, cardiac arrest, and other things can result from just being in that position. So to put somebody with the added pressure of people laying on top of him, and it's worse for people of, he was a large man, he was a big guy. And to be in that position put that much more pressure on his internal organs and his, and his diaphragm, made it more difficult to breathe. And so it was just a myriad ad, not to mention that if he had some sort of underlying medical condition that exacerbated that. But the thing is, they had a duty to act. When, when this person became unresponsive, they should have rendered care. And that's the thing that really shocked me and horrified me when I saw that video. Are you, as a former police officer, shocked or horrified that the charge is second-degree murder for that officer and that the three other officers were charged as well? <laughs> it's kind of a, that's kind of a, a, a jaded question, you know, obviously. Um, from my perspective, um, I think that the initial, the, 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 uh, uh, the officer who was in charge, the senior officer on site. Um, I think his charges are probably appropriate just because of the lack of empathy, because he was a senior man in charge, 19-year officer. He was in charge of that scene. Uh, I have empathy for the other two younger officers who now it's revealed that one was only three days on the job, the other was only four days on the job, and that and this is what is being reported, you know, that these are new officers and they're under his guidance. And I think that they, they, they all appropriately should have lost their jobs and they don't deserve to be police officers because of the totality of the case. But to charge them equally with that crime when, uh, again, as I have understood, that one of the younger officers even made mention, should we roll him on his side? And he said no. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't move, he wouldn't reposition, wouldn't take, do anything. And I think that it's, it, look, we're, we're dealing in a really, this is a really touchy subject. And it's, and there's, uh, uh, I, I understand why people are so upset. And I, I understand why they're so angry um, over the circumstances. But, um, you know, the other officer who was standing, uh, uh, kind of doing crowd control, you know, he didn't ever even touch, touch, touched him you know he was never had hands on him um so but should he have lost his job and think but should he be charged equally i don't know and uh it's, if it's you really if you were in that situation and you were not the officer restraining the individual um give we have like 60 seconds left so just right. quick answer what would you have done if you were one of the other officers not D derek chauvin well i think and this is just my opinion, and it's hard to Monday morning quarterback things, but if I had the seniority to stand up to this officer, which the other officer on scene did, I would have probably forcefully said, you got to get off of him, and we got to do something. We have to, you have to intervene. The other two guys didn't have the seniority to stand up to him, and I'm sure there was a lot of intimidation factor. The senior guy, he's in charge. We're just going along with what he's telling us to do, so... Um, but somebody, the other officer had, I think he had like 10 years on the job. He had the seniority to actually go up to him and say, get off of him. So somebody should have taken uh, action, actually. Thank you.
Thank you, my cousin. I love you very much. Even though your crazy ideas, I do not agree with. But <laughs> <laughs> well, back at you. Love you too, and thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I said I saw his post, and I said I gotta have it on. We agree on something. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Yeah. Good. Thank you. We are back. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. Listening to us on radio, listening to us on various uh, podcast uh, live streams, and of course, uh, also watching us on Periscope, Periscope uh, through Twitter. Uh, more than a pleasure to have on as our second guest in the hour is Connor Maxwell. Uh, Connor is a senior policy analyst for race and ethnicity policy at the Center for American Progress. His work focuses on criminal justice, racial justice, diversity, and inclusion issues. And prior to joining American Progress, he interned at the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, the ACLU, and the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. He enters Bachelor of Arts and Masters of Public Policy from the University of Virginia. On Twitter, he is Connor underscore symbol underscore symbol Maxwell. And the handle for the race and ethnicity policy team of the Center for American Progress is at Cap Talks Race. And we're going to talk race with Connor. Connor Maxwell, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome uh, to the program. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And we're excited to have you with us. And see, he dressed nicer for the program than me, right? (laughs) Good first impression. Um, House and Senate Democrats have unveiled a new policing reform bill. They did this yesterday, and certainly this is in the wake of the killing of Mr. George Floyd at the hands of a now former Minneapolis police officer. We've had weeks of protests that continue against police brutality. Uh, This is called the Justice and Policing Act of 2020. It contains a number of measures that make it easier to prosecute police misconduct and demilitarize police departments um, around the country. And the bill's biggest provision seeks to end qualified immunity. It's a thorny legal issue that gives police officers and other public officials broad immunity from civil lawsuits. We'll get to that. But when we look at some of these measures... Um, what is your first take or takeaway from this Justice and Policing Act of 2020? Is it good? Is it comprehensive? Is it a start? Does it not go far enough? What do you think? Sure. So we can always go further, especially on an issue like policing. Um, but it is an, it's a critical first step. And the most important thing that it does is it sends a message to lawmakers around the country on every level that this is not just a Minneapolis issue or Minnesota issue. issue. This is a national issue and it deserves national attention and that no lawmaker can stick their head in the sand and say it's not a problem here. Everyone needs to be working on this issue. When we talk about being able, well, first of all, one of the things I saw was a measure, and I think it was in Minneapolis, and I say I think because Los Angeles made some changes thus far overnight, so is New York, Minneapolis, and some other cities uh, and states are, are following suit. And of course, I'm sure we'll see more and more um, on a local level 
and we know this will pass the House and hopefully won't get stuck in the Senate graveyard, but I fear until we can flip that blue, uh, that might be the case, sadly, for a while. Um, one of the things I saw is that in this bill, they want to have that database so that if somebody has um, you know, uh, ne- negative marks on their record, if you will, um, and if there you know, are issues, uh, that people uh, know this. So technically, I could be a bad police officer. I could be a bully. I could have a lot of complaints against me and I could leave one city and go to another city or one state and go to another state. And they don't really have that cross-referencing or uh, background check ability, right? And that's kind of wild in 2020 that we wouldn't have that for this type of job. An individual is going to carry a gun, but that that's where we are right now. And this does address that to a degree, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So the federal government does a lot of things well, but uh, collecting data on law enforcement in general is, is not one of those things. And so this bill seeks to correct that. You know, if you were to, if you, let's say you lived in Colorado and you moved to Washington state, there is a system in place uh, that would flag that you might've moved and your, and your new state, Washington, would actually send you a letter and say, hey, it looks like you moved here um, from Colorado. Let's update your voter registration. Um, we don't have any sort of system in place uh, on a national level that's robust enough to track law enforcement officers who have engaged in, you know, violations of American citizens' constitutional rights. And so that's something that the bill tries to collect here. It's a really essential piece of this legislation and of this broader conversation about the role of policing in the United States. A lot of people aren't aware of this uh, qualified immunity. Um well, first of all, why is it so difficult to prosecute police misconduct? Because you're even hearing rumblings now um, about how difficult it might be for Keith Ellison in Minnesota to prosecute these officers um, based on that. Um, so can, can we touch upon this qualified immunity and why it's so difficult to prosecute police misconduct or a police officer when they have uh, committed uh, uh, such grievances? Sure. So it is a really complex issue, but the simple thing that listeners need to know is that courts have granted law enforcement officers with pretty broad discretion in terms of use of force, especially fatal use of force. Um, Law enforcement officers really only need to argue that they felt that their lives were in danger um, in order to use lethal force. And this qualified immunity protects them from uh, for instance, victims seeking damages in a, in a lot of cases. And so, you know, one of these reforms in, in this bill, what, what it seeks to do is make it easier for victims to seek those damages. Uh, you know, we live in a society where we have empowered a, a certain segment uh, to use lethal force against other U.S. citizens. That's an incredible power, especially based on uh, the protections that exist in the Constitution for our life and liberty. And so uh, the courts have, you know, have interpreted uh, uh, these statues as providing sweeping protections for officers, but it's an increasing priority for reformers um, to to at least modify and, and scale back those provisions. I know that um, they're, the Supreme Court's looking at whether they're going to put this on the docket, right, and hear arguments uh, next term in a case challenging this qualified immunity based on the Supreme Court in the past, which has upheld the qualified immunity doctrine, um, do you think the court can be swayed by the outrage from the, the masses and, and, and the public? And when I say the outrage, um, th- this isn't just from the African-American community. 
I mean, when you looked at Hollywood Boulevard and the shots, if you look close, there were more white people out there protesting than there were black people. Um, but can if the Supreme Court puts this forth, um, is it this is something we need to look at and pay attention to because the, the court could reverse, um, you know, uh, if you will, a systemic decision on this issue? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question, uh, but I think you're absolutely right. What, right now we're seeing a not just a uh, statewide issue, not just a national issue, but a, a global movement for police reform in the United States. I mean, you have protests in Europe, in parts of Africa, um, in Asia for police reform in the United States. And so, you know, hopefully the Supreme Court will revisit this issue and take it seriously. Um, the Washington Post article, uh, Washington Post poll that came out today found that 81% of Americans, 81% think that more needs to be done to improve how police officers are treating African-Americans in this country. And so, you know, with that sort of mandate, um, I, I'm really, really hoping that the Supreme Court will at least give this a serious look. Absolutely. And when you see polls like from, uh, um, is it Monmouth University, 70% of people are siding with the protesters, 71% of those polled are white. Uh, the legislation uh, that we were just talking about, uh, touching upon that misconduct, I want to give a shout out to Senator Cory Booker um, because it's his proposal to create a new national registry to track misconduct as a way to prevent repeat offenders from being rehired at other police departments. Um, even though I, I love him and I didn't think he'd be the Democratic candidate, um, you know, Marky, Mark Maldi, my executive producer, can attest he was the most fun and the nicest guy that we worked with when we did the uh, Teamsters Democratic Forum in Iowa at the end of last year. So I, I just love Senator Booker. Um, let's talk about um, the chokeholds. In this bill, they want to ban chokeholds and certain no-walk, no-knock no warrants at the federal level. Let's do one at a time. No, no chokeholds. That to me seems a no-brainer. France has done it. This is not just something that could be state or federal, but international. Police officers don't need a chokehold necessarily to subdue an individual. Correct? No, and especially because of the prospects of you know potentially lethal force that can come from a chokehold. Um, there's absolutely no need for it. I see this issue as frankly low-hanging fruit. Um, hopefully everyone can get behind the idea that in the process of detaining someone, the law, enfor law enforcement should not be essentially strangling people. So, you know, hopefully that's, that's something that people can come together around and get that through very quickly. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, the no-knock warrant, because some people uh, don't understand that those, especially on a federal level, because it can be different than a state level, obviously. We'll continue with you. We'll take a quick break, and we will be back with Connor Maxwell, Senior Policy Analyst for Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress. Uh, like I said, on Twitter, his handle is Connor underscore symbol underscore symbol Maxwell, and the handle for the Race and Ethnicity Policy Team of the Center for American Progress is at Cap Talks Race, C-A-P Talks Race. We'll be back with Connor. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We're back with 
Connor Maxwell, Senior Policy Analyst for Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress. And uh, as I mentioned, his work focuses on criminal justice, racial justice, diversity, and inclusion issues. You can follow him on Twitter at Connor underscore symbol underscore symbol Maxwell. The handle for the Race and Ethnicity Policy Team of the Center for American Progress is at CAP Talks Race. That's at CAP Talks Race. Uh, Connor, thank you for holding. Um, welcome back. Uh, we talked about um, the chokeholds. Uh, let's talk about those certain no-knock warrants at the federal level. What do they mean by that, and specifically at the federal level, and why are there only certain no-knock warrants? Some people might say, well, wait a minute, you know, a police has, you know, the police, uh, if they know there's a meth lab or something, they have the right to, like, you know, barge in. And, you know, so I, th- I think people, you know, feel that criminals are just going to have a free uh, you know, reign with some of this, and that's simply not the case. Um, please, please educate us. Sure. So, uh, put very simply, a no-knock warrant is when the police do not have to knock first, uh, wait for an answer, explain that they are the police, and request access uh, to to a building uh, before just going in. There is a time and a place for a no-knock warrant. Uh, hostage situation, for instance, when maybe SWAT needs to get in there in order to save lives, um, but unfortunately. No-knock warrants have been really expanded grossly in recent decades. Now they're used to execute all sorts of warrants. And it's not just busting in, you know, a multi-million dollar meth lab. Sometimes it's just going after a couple of of people who may have been suspected of of dealing marijuana out of their apartments. And the the problem really arises because, one, uh, a lot of, you know, there are 400 million privately owned guns in the United States. And a lot of states have stand your ground laws and other statutes in place that allow someone, if someone smashes down your door, to fire on that intruder. And so it puts uh, both law enforcement and those individuals at tremendous risk um, when when no-knock warrants are executed. Um, The other thing is it's used for all all sorts of cases, even on the federal level. There's a classic example. a few years ago, there was a, a gold mining operation in uh, in Chicken, Alaska, a small, small town. And uh, agents from Fish and Wildlife and the EPA executed one of these warrants, gun drawn, guns drawn, rolled up to a gold mine to investigate violations of the Clean Water Act. And, you know, this is a gold mine. Now, people are already on edge. There's some really valuable stuff in there. And, you know, that could have been an absolute disaster. Shots could have been exchanged. Uh, civilians could have been killed. Law enforcement officers could have been killed. So this is, takes an important step in reforming no-knock warrants um, and putting pressure on states and localities also to uh, scale them back. Also, a no-knock warrant was used by police back in March in Kentucky that resulted in the 26-year-old EMT who died after officers broke her door down without warning and fatally shot her. And that is the death of a woman many of us now know the name of, of uh, Breonna Taylor. Uh, correct? Is that uh, she was the victim of a no-knock warrant and a bullet as a result of that? Absolutely. And in fact, it was actually the wrong apartment that they were executing that search warrant in. The suspects that they were looking for were already in police custody when they barged in. Um, Brianna Taylor's uh, boyfriend exchanged fire with with police. Uh, they fired more than 20 shots, eight of them uh, hitting Miss Taylor and killing her. And this is this is not not uncommon. You're an African-American. I am not. We can clearly see that. Senator Cory Booker, who's also an African-American, said, quote, 
We must change laws and systems of accountability. We must pass legislation that makes our common values and our common ideals real in the law of our land. The reason I pointed out our race is um, I agree there's no question that there is a systemic racism problem in America. Um, is changing the law and system of accountability going to help stop that that systemic problem that we've had in this nation, perhaps for hundreds of years. It won't solve all the problems. I mean, you can't solve all the problems with the stroke of a pen. This will take decades of work and it'll take relentless pressure uh, from like-minded individuals who care about these issues. Um, but it is an important step. You know, uh, polls have shown that Americans' opinions on this issue has shifted dramatically in recent weeks. Back in 2014, uh, about 40% of Americans, when asked about the shootings of unarmed black men, thought that that was indicative of a more systemic problem. And now it's two thirds of Americans think that. Um, you know, and, and this is, you know, people of color have known this forever. Uh, polls have shown that half, half, half of African Americans have experienced racial discrimination when interacting with police in their lifetimes. What? You know, compared to, a, you know, less than one in 10 uh, white people. And so, um, you know, reforming these law enforcement practices, ensuring accountability will only improve trust and make the society a better place to live for all Americans. But it's not enough. We also need to talk about deeper structural reforms to our economic system, to our educational system, our healthcare system. Um, you know, far more people have died from far more black people have needlessly died from coronavirus this year than from law enforcement uh, shootings. And we need to talk about that. This was avoidable uh, if we had if we had taken the time, if we had cared about black communities over the last 400 years, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in today. Interesting. I was talking to two of my girlfriends uh, last night. We kind of did like a little Zoom happy hour and we were talking about the protest. All three of us live here in Southern California. We're all in favor um, of the protest and stand behind the protesters and are um, horrified about what happened to Mr. Floyd and keeps happening in this nation. And we are all white. And we were talking about the disproportionate um, cases of COVID in the black community, COVID-19, the disproportionate unemployment as a result um, of COVID-19 in the black community. And then when you add to that another, I can't breathe, another video, another death, um, because we were talking about not just the protests, but how they've gone on longer than Ferguson, for example, or protest in the past. And, you know, I, I think you can't look at, you have to look at realities and that's part of the realities. It's not just frustration and anger. Um, the racial injustice isn't just about Mr. Floyd, isn't just about killing at the hands of cops, but also, as you mentioned, uh, being disproportionately affected by this virus, being disproportionately affected by unemployment as a result of this virus, uh, not having uh, your schools the same, not having the same opportunity. The list goes on. I say this because I've had this conversation uh, with a neighbor of mine who's white, and he's offended when I, I say you you have to admit that you are uh, you you have white privilege, you know, and in sometimes, you know, white people don't understand that because it comes down to word, wording and semantics. And I want to talk about a segue uh, with that into defunding the police. Um, this bill is called transformative. Many people say it'll pa obviously will pass the House. Uh, we'll get stuck in the Senate. And even if it were somehow to pass the Senate, president wouldn't sign it. That's no surprise. Uh, Donald Trump has made his attitudes about this and law and order uh, very clear. The bill also doesn't contain any new money for police. Uh, they're really about reformation. There is a movement about defunding the police 
And I think some people misunderstand what that means simply because of what it's called. Um, uh, except for maybe some very few people, a handful, um, most people who talk about defunding the police, they're really talking about tearing down and rebuilding and reforming, not having no police at all. Am I correct in that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, if you ask your typical, say, six-year-old uh, what police do, they will tell you that police catch robbers, they catch bad guys. Um, but when you grow up, you learn that police are really involved with a, in a ton of different issues that they don't have expertise. And so, you know, police are also addressing, you know, trying to solve the substance use uh, disorder problem in the United States. They're being called to respond uh, to people who have uh, mental health disorders who need help. Um, they're being called to enforce truancy laws and uh, laws that require that teenagers are inside by 11 p.m. They're involved in so, so much. And a lot of this conversation about defunding police isn't about zeroing out funding for all law enforcement activities. It's about reallocating some funding, making sure that uh, the Department of Mental Health is actually getting uh, you know, some extra money, uh, maybe reducing the scope of law enforcement in, in that specific area. And so you know, there is definitely some misunderstandings about this issue. Um, uh, the policing, and we have a minute, so I'm going to be fast. The policing normally is done at local and state levels, not federal levels. Um, and there are nearly 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this nation. Um, uh, so, you know, obviously this, you know, does something on a federal level, but it does address things on a state level. And uh, it, we are, do you think it's important for governors in each state and mayors in each city uh, to tackle their own issues within their own department separate from this? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the federal government in this bill, they authorize up to $100 million for states to pursue, pursue their own investigations into law enforcement agencies and to bring about reform agreements. So there's a role for local, state, and federal lawmakers to play. Um, we don't have time for John Oliver, who did a very uh, interesting and I thought accurate um, explanation of defund uh, police, hashtag defund police movement. It's not what people think. So thank you for explaining it. Connor, thank you for being with us. Connor Maxwell, a senior policy analyst for race and ethnicity policy at the Center for American Progress on Twitter. Uh, follow him, Connor underscore symbol underscore symbol Maxwell. The handle for race and ethnicity policy team of the Center for American Progress is at Caps Talk Race. I'm Leslie Marshall. Marky Mark Grimaldi's our producer. Save big money in your next project with 11% off everything. Right now at Menards. Over 120 in-stock Sylvania LED bulbs are 11% off. Sylvania LED bulbs last up to 11,000 hours and use 85% less energy than 60-watt bulbs. Pick up a four-pack for $4.89 after 11% off. Start saving today with 11% off everything. Prices are good until August 22nd. Savings are a mail-in rebate. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Save big money at with the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details.